Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So I'm speaking here on Edith Stein, uh, and I start with one of those significant Jewish stories. Two elderly rabbis are talking about their impending deaths, and one of them expresses great anxiety about the judgment God will pass on his life. And so his friend, trying to understand his anxiety, asks, is it that you fear God will ask you at the judgment why you have not become another Moses or David? And his friend replied, no, I don't fear that God will hold me to that standard. What I fear is that God will ask me, why did you not become the person I created you to be? Now you'll see right away how this story serves to introduce our philosophical reflection on the individuality proper to persons. Now the paper has, just to help you track it, uh, four parts. Um, I begin by explaining why individuality in persons is something different from and stronger than individuality in non-persons. In the second part, I offer a metaphysical reflection on this distinctly personal individuality of a human being, a reflection that comes to us from Edith Stein. In the third part, I want to provide some historical setting for Edith Stein's idea. And in the final part, I'll consider one challenging objection to her position and try to respond to it. Now, I am not yet sure that her position is entirely correct, though I strongly incline toward it. And I want to see how far I can go in defending it. So we begin with the first part of the paper. What is the measure of individuality proper to the human person? Let us distinguish between myself as a human being, or in other words, as an instance of human nature, and myself as this human person which I am. Now the difference is clear. As an instance of human nature, I am just like every other human being. Each of us is an instance of human nature. But as this human person, I am myself and no other. It follows that as an instance of human nature, I am replaceable by other instances of human nature. If I were to perish entirely, all that would be lost in the way of human nature could exist again in other instances of it. By contrast, as this individual person, I am absolutely irreplaceable 
If I were to perish entirely as this individual person, no possible subsequent person could effect a replacement of me. But clearly we do not yet capture man as person simply by taking him as this individual person because we can take any plant and animal in the same way. Thus, we can distinguish between a fish as an instance of a fish species and a fish as this individual fish. The difference between instance of a kind and this individual runs throughout all of nature. If we hope to uh, define here the defining mark of persons, we will have to show something special about being this individual human being. And this is not difficult to show. Being this individual is of relatively little importance with plants and most animals, whereas being this individual is supremely important with persons. Let me explain. With fish, for example, it is important only that there be some individual instances of a fish species. But whether the individual that instantiates the species be this individual or that one makes no difference. In all the kinds of interest we can possibly take in fish, there is no basis for preferring this individual fish to that equally good instance of the same fish species. All we can possibly want is a fish of a species. Any fish will do, but never can I reasonably want precisely this one rather than that one. If a fish dies but reproduces itself before dying, then its offspring completely replace the parent fish. And anything that could have interested us in the parent fish will interest us equally in the offspring. The offspring are so interchangeable with the parent that there is no sense of loss about the death of the parent. The individual fish are completely dominated by their species. They are mere carriers of it, mere instances of it. This is what makes them interchangeable one with another and makes it impossible for our interest in fish to fix on precisely this one here to the exclusion of all others of the same species. In other words, the interchangeability of the fish makes it impossible for us ever to take an interest in an individual fish all for its own sake. But with human persons, it is completely different. They are not dominated in the same way by the human species. But as has often been said, each person stands in a sense above the human species. Or better, each contains something in excess of the human species or contains some identity irreducible to the identity that we have as a human being. Consider the kinds of interests we can take in a human person. We can take an interest in one person that does not extend to others, but is an interest only in this one. If this one is my friend, then 
a replacement is absolutely out of the question. There is no one with whom he or she is interchangeable. I do not just want a friend of a certain description, but this one and no other. The death of a human person who was my friend inflicts a sense of loss that no subsequent human person can possibly annul. Thus I say that being this individual means something entirely different when said of persons than when said of plants and animals. It takes on an entirely new significance that it never has in the subpersonal world. We can be more precise and say that an individual plant or animal being simply a carrier of its plant or animal species is an individual in a weak sense. Its individuality is weakened by the dominance of the plant or animal type. But an individual person exceeding as he does the humankind is an individual in a far more powerful sense. The weakness of plant or animal individuality is shown in this, that I can never want an individual plant or animal for its own sake. And the strength of personal individuality is shown in this, that a person can and ought to be wanted always for his or own, her own sake. One cannot begin to understand what a person is if one fails to grasp the abundance of individual being that we point to when we say something in excess of the humankind, something more than an instance or carrier of it. Karol Wojtyla understood this, and in fact, this thought, the very thought I'm calling, uh, trying to draw out, stands at the center of his personalism. If we look at that seminal essay of Wojtyla, Subjectivity and the Irreducible in Man, we find him distinguishing between what he calls a cosmological image of man and a personalist image of man. And for Wojtyla, the cosmological image is in large part defined by thinking of human, individual humans mainly as bearers of the identity rational animal, whereas the personalist image is defined by thinking of individual humans mainly as unrepeatable, incommunicable uh, persons. And in his essay, Wojtyla uh, also asks how we have to approach a human being so as to take him or her as person. And he answers, that's in the title of the essay, Subjectivity and the Irreducible in Man. He answers that we have to perform a certain turn to the subject. That is, we have to give particular attention to each human being as a personal subject, as a center of subjectivity, as a being of interiority. Only taken in this way, he argues, do human beings come to evidence as unrepeatable persons. There's a wonderful passage in Romano Guardini that expresses exactly Wojtyla's idea. Guardini 
is considering the pragmatic way in which we typically relate to each other. We take another under the aspect of something that we need from him or her, thus in some way objectifying the other. But sometimes, Gordini says, in better moments, we sense that this way of relating to the other is not really appropriate to who the other is as person. And so we take our heavy, pragmatic hands off the other, releasing the other into his or her own being, as Guardini expressively says, and letting the other appear before us as one living out of his or her own center. At this point, the other emerges out of the shadow of his object status and now stands before me as personal subject. And this is just Wojtyla's point. By letting the subjectivity of the other come to evidence, I encounter the other as person, as one who is more than an instance of some type or bearer of some kind, as one who interests me for his or her own sake. All right, that's uh, the first part of my paper on this, you could say, eminent individuality of each human person that takes the form of this unrepeatability. So we now turn to Edith Stein's reflection uh, on this uh, fact. And she was indeed fascinated by the datum of personal unrepeatability when in one place she speaks of the horror I feel at the thought of a doppelganger or double of myself, a second copy of myself, she is surely referring to my personal unrepeatability. For she says that a person rebels at the thought of a doppelganger, double of himself, because he fühlt sich selbst als ein unwiederholbares. He feels himself to be something unrepeatable. And here is another sign that she is concerned with the personal datum I've been discussing. She lays great stress on the ineffability of each person. What I share with others is not ineffable. This has a certain universality that lets me conceptualize it. Thus, a certain personality type to which I and others belong can be put in words, but that which is unrepeatably mine and incommunicably mine lacks any such universality and therefore cannot be articulated conceptually. It is, she says, ein unaussprechliches, something unutterable. It is nicht allgemein fassbar, can't be grasped in general terms. Since she lays such stress on this unutterability of the person. She can only be referring to personal unrepeatability, which is the very thing that defies this being conceived in general terms. So I am convinced that she had in view uh, and was taken by and fascinated by the very uh, datum I uh, started from. So now I come to 
the metaphysical teaching that she proposes for uh, explaining this marvel of personal unrepeatability. She holds that the unrepeatable identity of a person is to be explained in terms of an individual essence, individualis wesen, proper to that person, an individual essence that is over and above the common human essence found in all human beings. It is not enough, she says, to invoke the signate matter of the Thomists as a principle that individuates the common human essence, for then we get only instances of humanity and the special unrepeatability of each human person goes unaccounted for. Only the individual personal essence explains what we have called above this surplus of being that makes the person. This individual essence, she says, is just as primordial as the common human essence in the sense that it is given from the beginning and not acquired along the way. You or I do not acquire our human nature as we go, but have it from the beginning. And so with my individual essence, it too is part of that fundamental constitution from which I start. In one place, she articulates her position like this. She considers the view that, quote, each individual thing has its essence, but this essence is the same as that of all the other members of the same species, end quote. She then says that she cannot accept this view in the case of human persons. Quote, it seems to me that the essence of Socrates is found in his being Socrates, which includes his being human. And I hold that this essence differs not only numerically, but also by virtue of a special particularity from the essence of any other human being. And quote, this special particularity is nothing other than the individual essence of Socrates. It's very interesting to see how Edith Stein expresses this thought in her very first publication, in her doctoral dissertation. I've been quoting up until now from her magnum opus, her metaphysical treatise on finite and eternal being, the final chapter of which contains her most mature thought on personal unrepeatability. But 20 years earlier, in her dissertation on empathy, she spoke of how, quote, a person has such and such a nature because he was exposed to such and such influences. Under other circumstances, he would have developed differently. There is something empirically fortuitous in this nature, end quote. Then she warns that human individuality cannot be entirely explained along these lines. She says, quote, I can think of Caesar in a village instead of in Rome and can think of him transferred to the 20th century. Certainly, his historically settled individuality would then go through some changes, but just as surely, he would remain Caesar 
end of the quote. When she goes on to speak here of the unchangeable kernel in the personal structure of Caesar, it is not difficult to see her aiming at that which she will later call das individuelle Wesen, or individual essence of each person. Now, before um, uh, we can offer an opinion on the proposal of Edelstein, we have to understand just be better what it means and what it does not mean. Uh, so uh, we'll ask whether it's true after we've tried to clarify the exact sense of it. So let's contrast her view of personal individuality with another view of it. It is commonly thought that what lies deepest in us human beings is the human identity that we share with all others, and that the more particular identities, such as our racial or national identity, or our familial identity, lie rather on the surface of our being, and are not nearly as significant as the identity that we have through our human nature. One draws out the line of, any, of ever more particular identities until one comes to characteristics that distinguish me from all of my neighbors. And one says that this individual identity is the least significant of all. What are those peculiarities that distinguish me from all other people in comparison with the humanity that unites me with all of them? Is not a great deal of suffering and injustice caused by the way we overrate our individual peculiarities and underrate our common humanity? In this perspective, human nature is the great essential principle of a human being, and the peculiarities that distinguish me from others do not amount to another equally weighty essential principle, but, but are rather, in a way, accidental. Now, Edith Stein holds, by contrast, that what she calls the individual essence of a person is something entirely different from, and entirely more than, the bundle of peculiarities that mark one person off against all others. She thinks that such a bundle, which after all could mark off one plant or animal against all the others, could never capture that surplus of being that makes a human individual to be a person. She would point out that such a bundle is not unutterable. We can perfectly well articulate a list of characteristics that serve to pick me out from all other people. Thus, she holds that the unrepeatability that makes me a person lies at a much deeper level uh, than a defining bundle. She says that it lies in, quote, the innermost center of the soul, where the soul is most herself and most shows her spiritual character, end quote. The individual essence of each person is then a major metaphysical ingredient of the human being, no less in a way than the human nature that is shared by all of us. 
Yeah? Continuing this effort to focus what she means and doesn't mean, let's um, look at another position that Edith Stein is excluding. This is a position that gives a plausible account of the origin of personal individuality in a human being. One might say, a human being starts with human nature, which he shares with all others. In living his life, that person acquires a unique history, the events that befall him, the other persons he encounters, and most of all, the choices he makes, the commitments he takes on, constitute an unrepeatable history, and hence, an unrepeatable personal identity. This, one might plausibly say, is what adds that uh, adds a dimension of personal unrepeatability to the common human nature. His metaphysical constitution on this view begins as an individual of the humankind, and he acquires along the way the thing that I have been calling personal unrepeatability. But Edith Stein holds that each of us has a personal individuality that is not acquired, but rather given from the beginning, given just as fundamentally as human nature is given. The process running from infancy through childhood and adolescence into adulthood is not the process of personal unrepeatability being constituted, but simply the process of it being awakened. Now, well, come in just a moment to her main reason for holding uh, this. But one more uh, preliminary on what is uh, meant here. One reason why the position of Edith Stein is controversial is that she is forced to use essence in an unusual sense in order to state her position on the individual essence that each human being has. We typically think of essence as a form communicable to many individuals. Thus, when we speak of our human essence, we say that all of us human beings share that essence, that it is common to us. Essence seems always to admit of multiple instantiations. But when Edith Stein speaks of the individual essence that makes each of us a person, she speaks of what cannot have multiple instantiations. The horror felt at the idea of my doppelganger is based on the absurdity of multiple copies of me as person. So, this individual essence is a special kind of essence that can only exist once. It is an essence that forms a unique kind of oneness with the existence of the person whose essence it is. The position of Edith Stein is that nothing prevents the essence of a being from existing only in that being and having no possible instantiation in any other being. She points out that this is just what many people believe about the angels. Each angel is believed to have its own angelic essence and to monopolize the essence, so to say, that no two angels can share it. She holds, in effect, that human persons are more like angelic persons 
than previously thought, and that each human person has an individual personal essence, incommunicably his or her own. Now, if uh, I've succeeded, a big if, in clarifying what this claim of Edelstein means, uh, it is natural to go on and ask, and what reason does she give for the truth of this claim? Uh, and various reasons can be gathered from her work, Finite and Eternal Being. I um, will just pick out one, as I think, a particularly compelling reason. She says that most persons do not get very far in recognizing and fulfilling their individual essence. Ihr, ihr, ihr innerstes und eigenstes bleibt ihnen meist verborgen, that which is most interior to them and most their own, um, usually remains hidden to them. And she continues, it is veiled by that coding which individual human nature has acquired in the course of a life under the influence of social conventions. End quote. She seems to mean that social conventions and patterns of conformity tend to obscure the unique personal essence of a person, to obscure it even in the eyes of the person himself. I think of myself merely as one who fulfills a social role, and others see in me nothing more than that. Edith Stein then, having mentioned this, uh, this, this danger of losing touch, as it were, with one's real self, quotes the line in the book of Revelation that says, to him who conquers, I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. And she says that this new name expresses the innermost essence of the recipient. Excuse me, I'm quoting her again. Expresses the innermost essence of the recipient and discloses to him or her the mystery of their being hidden in God, end of quote. The name calls him back to his true self, which he or she hardly knew in their earthly lives. So the argument here is this. If my individual essence can be obscured like this, can be only partly known even to me, then it must be something more than I just acquire by the experience of life. It is something like an ideal for me to achieve rather than just the factual result of my life experiences. It precedes my life experiences rather than results from them. So she argues. Uh, and it's um, worth mentioning here that, that the argument of Edith Stein, I think, can be um, strengthened by a kindred uh, uh, thought in Max Scheler, who also defended the idea that each person has an individual essence. In his phenomenology of love, Scheler showed that the lover sees more in the beloved than anyone else can see. This brings us back to the previous uh, uh, lecture today. 
sees more in the beloved than anyone else can see. And that he can see deeply into the unrepeatable person that the beloved is. And what he sees, Shaler says, is something far in excess of what the beloved has in fact become. The lover glimpses all that the beloved person is meant to become. That is, he glimpses the ideal self of the other. By the force of his love, he empowers the beloved person to grow in to the full proportions of his true self. But this implies that the individual essence of the beloved person is something far more than the residue left in him by life experiences and by significant choices. The individual essence serves as a norm and measure for what the person is destined to become, which implies that this essence cannot be reduced to the factual condition of the person. All right. We have turned the corner. The end is in sight. The third uh, section uh, attempts to provide uh, a, 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 what I think is a very revealing historical setting uh, for this thought in Edelstein. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned that the thought is not found in her alone. It's there in Scheler. I have found it myself in thinkers as diverse as Karl Rahner and Jacques Maritain. But the uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor goes farther. He discerns Edith Stein's idea on a much larger scale, not just limited to a few kindred spirits. Charles Taylor thinks that her idea is somehow characteristic for our age. Consider this significant statement of his. He says, Herder, a late 18th century German theologian and man of letters, Herder put forth the idea that each of us has an original way of being human. Each person has his or her own measure, is his way of putting it. This, this idea, Taylor says, has entered very deep into modern consciousness. It is also new. Before the late 18th century, no one thought that the differences between human beings had this kind of significance. There is a certain way of being that is my way. I am called upon to live my life in this way, not in imitation of anyone else's, but this gives a new importance to being true to myself. End of that quote from Taylor. In another of his works, Charles Taylor is exploring this new sense of the significance of the differences among human beings. And he says, quote, the differences are not just unimportant variations within the same basic human nature, or else differences between good and bad individuals. Rather, they entail that each one of us has an original path on which we ought to tread. They lay the obligation on each of us to live up to our own originality." End quote. Now, if Taylor is 
correctly interpreting for us the intellectual history of the last few centuries, then it seems to me very plausible to insert Edith Stein within this growing sense of what Taylor calls personal originality. And it seems to me that by providing this historical context for reading her, we understand more exactly and more concretely what she is about with her proposal of the individual personal essence of each human being. And there's perhaps one other thing we can take away from Taylor. He stresses the novelty of this rising sense of personal originality. And he means that a certain truth about the human person is now coming to light that was not fully experienced and acknowledged in the ancient and in the medieval world. As a result, it should not surprise us if we cannot find in the greatest ancient philosophers all the theoretical resources we need for giving an account of personal unrepeatability. It should not surprise us if new philosophical ground has to be broken in order to provide this account. And the question of my paper is whether Edith Stein's individual personal essence meets this need for new philosophical reflection. Now, there remains simply one brief uh, consideration of an objection. Philosophers aren't doing their work if they don't ferret out the most plausible objections to their claim uh, and deal with them. So I take uh, an objection to the idea of Edith Stein I've been presenting that Sarah Borden Sharkey develops in her book, Individuality and Edith Stein's Later Writings. Uh, and the objection goes like this. The universal moral law, based as it is on our common human nature, will be prevented by these individual essences from applying equally to all human persons. So Sarah Borden is concerned that a person striving to be himself or herself will feel justified in setting aside some part of the moral law that we are subject to as human beings. And this indeed happens in the setting of so-called situation ethics, where persons appealing to the demands of the unique moral situations in which they find themselves carve out exceptions uh, from the moral law for myself, for themselves. So if uh, my pursuit of my personal essence can lead me to take liberties with the universal moral law, then there seems to be something fundamentally wrong with the very idea of an individual essence. Now, I would respond like this. It is certainly true that Edith Stein's idea has ethical consequences that she did not articulate. It was, above all, Max Scheler who articulated them when he developed uh, the original idea of a moral call or even a moral vocation that is rooted in the individual essence of a person. 
Shaler said, following in the footsteps of thinkers like Herder, that a person may be called to some action or some way of life just because he is the unrepeatable person he is, and not because the action or way of life is binding on every human being. But, uh, and this is the heart of my response to the objection, these personal moral calls, uh, especially as Scheler presents them, never violate universal norms. Uh, Scheler said they presuppose universal norms and call for actions that go beyond all that the universal norms require. They represent a dimension of the moral life built on and added to the moral life that binds all human beings in the same way. They represent, you could say, a personalist enrichment of the moral life, not a subversion of its universality. And furthermore, to complete my response to the objection, the personal essence of each person is embedded in the common human nature in a way that prevents persons from turning against our common nature and the morality grounded in it. For we can express the unrepeatability of persons, and Edith Stein does this, in terms that presuppose a common nature, as when she says that each human person expresses his or her individual essence by living our common human nature in his or her unrepeatable way. You see, this adverbial way of expressing the personal essence inserts it from the beginning within our common nature and avoids even the appearance of letting it fall outside of our common nature. And in this way, we avoid even the appearance of these personal moral calls ever contradicting the moral law. So let us return to the Jewish story from which uh, I began and to the rabbi who fears hearing from God on the last day, why didn't you become the person I created you to be? Is this rabbi not acknowledging his unique personal essence as a norm for God's judgment of his life? And does this not make eminent Jewish and Christian sense? Does it not also make personalist sense? Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.